This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you, Colin and Mirsal, for joining us for this amazing film. Um, I wanted to start off with a conversation about what this film was looking at and how we got here in 1983. Mirsal, I wonder if I can ask you, for those who aren't familiar with the sort of political background and history of this film, can you walk us through what had happened up, leading up to 1983 and what might be forgotten but needs to be remembered in order to understand the context? Yeah, sure. I think that's a great way to start, um, you know, because uh, El Norte really is such a great film in terms of making audiences really aware of the struggles um, of immigrants in terms of the, you know, fleeing poverty and corruption and really fleeing for their lives and, and coming here out of desperation and, and, and looking for a better life and also just to survive, right? Um, and so one of the things that um, we don't see in the film as much is, you know, the reasons behind the problems, what exactly are the specifics of the problems that um, they're, why they're fleeing Guatemala and why so many people were, were fleeing uh, Central America at this time, more generally speaking. Um, you know, that's not the project of the film, of course. So, you know, this really was about compassion and, and making sure that um, folks, you know, trying to instill a sense of compassion in people, and, um, you know, regarding um, immigrants. And, uh, but it's still a really, it's so important to think about the reasons of why. Why do these conditions exist? Um, why are people having to leave these horrible conditions? Um, and so what we don't see here is actually the huge role that the U.S. actually played in creating these horrible conditions that Rosa and Enrique are fleeing. Um, so in terms of, you know, this large, uh, it, there's a it, large increase in terms of immigration from Central America during this time. And um, people were looking for refuge um, largely as a result, you know, a direct result um, of our own government's actions, um, you know, which were forcing people to come north. Um, so after World War II, um, there was, uh, in, in Guatemala, uh, President Jacobo Arbenz, who was democratically elected, um, and then, uh, you know, he was putting forward um, all kinds of land reform. So this included redistribution of land, um, increasing taxes for folks who own large, uh, you know, a lot of land. So um, at the time, the United Fruit Company owned huge amounts of land. They're making, you know, producing all kinds of bananas and they owned all kinds, they owned railroads, they owned um, shipping lines and communication networks and all kinds of stuff. So they were a huge powerhouse. Um, and so this was obviously, you know, a threat. Um, and so, uh, you know, what happens is that um, the United States ends up getting nervous, right? Like they're, oh, this is gonna be a threat to, well, what's gonna happen? All our US investments are gonna go sour, right? These big companies that um, are functioning in Central America, you know, this is not stuff that's just happening in Guatemala, it was happening. There are all different, you know, specific circumstances in, in different countries, um, but the US in terms of the US imperial project, right? Um, this, is, this is huge. There's all kinds of covert intelligence and operations um, that were meant to destabilize and overthrow the government um, and really couched, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, talked about as like, oh, we're going to get rid of this communist, you know, influence at this, at this time. Um, and, uh, but really, it's really about, uh, you know, the threat to all these big companies who are not going to be able to operate at such an enormous profit, right, if all this goes through. So, um, you know, eventually, uh, you know, what this means is that there's all kinds of repression, um, of anyone who supports the government, 
um, and the president was forced to, um, you know, into exile in 1954. And after that, you get a civil war that um, goes on for decades. Um, and you see kidnappings and assassinations, uh, just really horrible stuff. And, um, you know, there are a lot of indigenous uh, communities that really supported the rebels. And uh, what ends up happening is you end up, you, the U.S. Um, has, all, it helps to train uh, death squads, really, that come through and are, are just massacring people. There's a, a genocide of indigenous people. Um, I think it's something like 83% of the people who were killed and disappeared were Mayan. So uh, really, really, you know, the U.S. imperialism, again, is not just working in Guatemala at this time, um, all throughout Central America, um, El Salvador, Nicaragua, a lot of people, you know, heard of the Sandinistas. And, um, but, you know, this, again, the specifics are different, um, but the U.S. was really intimately uh, involved with creating those conditions that caused people to flee. And then when they arrive at the door, are treated just horribly here. So... Okay, yeah. Um, and Colin, if I can also give you another bit of background, because this is a sort of trying to set the stage for where the film comes from, which, which was just done beautifully by Mirasol. And now I'm curious about your sort of where the film's production, you know, the context of the production, which was this was not an easy film to shoot. Um, I wonder if you can give us a sense of just the challenges that the that this very small crew had and what they had to overcome to actually make this film um, in, in the early 1980s. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to, to pick up on where Mirasol left off, I think Gregory Nava was seeing the end point of that in Los Angeles, living in Los Angeles. And he grew up in San Diego and kind of has described himself as a, you know, like a, you know, having a border upbringing and going back and forth between uh, San Diego and Tijuana, but was living in Los Angeles at the time and, and realized that the city relied on, on, on immigrant labor, on this kind of invisible labor force, the, the, these kind of shadow people that, as he called them, and wanted to make a movie about them from their perspective, right? So on the one hand, there's the, the factors that are sending people from Guatemala. On the, on the other hand, Greg Nava became really interested in figuring out how to kind of document or talk about the experience of the people that were changing the demographics of LA, um, because a lot of, pe uh, a lot of people were justifiably fleeing, but it was also, and, and it continues to change the, the face of Los Angeles. And so it kind of embarked on this project uh, to, to tell this story from, from the perspective of indigenous uh, migrants. As you can imagine, getting a film like that funded in 1983 or in 2021 is incredibly difficult <laughs> because you're talking about protagonists who are speaking at the very least Spanish. And there's a, there is also the indigenous language Quiche in the film. Um, and selling that as something marketable in 1983 would have been very difficult. And in fact, um, there are some great stories about this, that, that when, when Nava and Anna Thomas pitched the film uh, to studios, someone suggested that they cast Robbie Benson and Brooke Shields in the leads um, at that time, which I kind of, you know, kind of want to see that movie because <laughs> it sounds terrible um, or they also suggested which was also that this is also something that Hollywood continues to do in, in into the 21st century there was also a suggestion that a border guard or a lawyer uh, like a white protagonist be the center of the film and this person takes interest in in, in the migrants um, which is you know which is something that Hollywood was doing in 1983 I don't know if anyone has seen the film um, Under Fire with Nick Nolte it's about the last days of the Samosa regime in Nicaragua 
And Nick Nolte, Nick Nolte plays an intrepid photojournalist kind of braving the, the war in Nicaragua, the revolution. Um, but it again, is very, very Hollywood tells it, uh, the story from that perspective. So Nava and Thomas wanted to make a completely different film and not from that perspective, not using those conventions. I think that's their success in doing that makes it a groundbreaking film in that respect, but it was also very difficult uh, to piece together. So they, they did get uh, half of their funding from PBS American Playhouse and had to piece the rest together from investors. Um, so getting that as a first stage of the process and the difficulties involved in that, the, the second part is shooting in Guatemala, which as you can imagine, while this is still going on, while there's a raging civil war going on, while the indigenous communities are being you know, tortured, oppressed, and, and, and massacred by the military forces in Guatemala, the filming there was impossible. So they moved to Chiapas um, uh, or they, they decided to film in Chiapas in Southern Mexico, which also has a large indigenous population of Mayan descent. Uh, but the things were, were not easy there either because I mean, kind of presciently, uh, Gregory Nava describes uh, Chiapas in 1983 as a tinderbox ready to explode. Uh, which would happen in on January first, nineteen ninety four, with the the Zapatista uprising. Uh, but in general, they were they were going to small villages where people are justifiably were justifiably because of government repression, um, suspicious of their presence, and so they faced resistance not only from indigenous folks who had who had had learned to be suspicious of outsiders and 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 suspected they were in, in league with the government. But they also faced surveillance from the Mexican government, who was who was who suspected them of um, of being up to something with the indigenous villagers. <laughs> so they, from on both sides, they faced the resistance. And as Gregory Nava uh, uh, has said in recent interviews, the crew—I mean, he was just out of UCLA Film School—the the crew was five people in a Volkswagen Bug. So it did not look like an official film crew as well, right? So there, uh, so the difficulty of filming on the fly, this kind of guerrilla, low-budget filmmaking, but also doing so in a very kind of tense situation uh, was difficult. And at, at, at some point they, they were kind of run out of town, run out of one village at another point. Um, and this is uh, potentially on the part of the Mexican government that was surveilling them. They had uh, a, neg- a can, a reel of negative footage stolen from the shoot and held for ransom. Um, so all the footage that they had shot in Chiapas was a, a potentially at risk and they had to pay the ransom uh, in a Mexico City parking lot, evidently to free the film. So there's just these kind of obstacles every step of the way, and 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 had to finish the filming then in Southern California. Um, so the, it's interesting insofar as it's a, it's an attempt. The film is was an intentional attempt to 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 grapple with this issue, both in terms of immigration and and what, what was going on in Los Angeles from that perspective. Um, but even doing so and inserting themselves within that situation at that particular moment uh, made the production all the more difficult. And I'm just curious, so one thing that always is very interesting is like who actually saw the film? In other words, the intended audience and, and the multitude of audiences that saw this film, which I think is kind of fascinating because it really suggests two things. One is, you know, the, the, the desire to actually have people outside of the community to see this film, but also the desire to have the community see this film, right? So that there's two different, and I'm sort of curious if you could kind of, if you have some uh, kind of a retrospective analysis of kind of who saw this film and, and what it meant in the fact of where it was released um, and how it was seen. Yeah, I think where I was seeing was probably, to, and their ability to get funding was probably dependent on the fact that they could sell an audience or sell the fact that there would be an audience. And part of that, I think, is American Playhouse and just guaranteed a television slot. Um, and, and it would be shown on television to a public television audience at the time. 
Um, but because of the, interestingly enough, and this is in many ways, the history of Latino film is how to market these things to multiple audiences and how to do so effectively. And I think in some ways, the history of Chicano film and Latino film is littered with these kind of miscalculations in some ways. <laughs> so you could imagine how the, the, that at this point, the calculation would have been, well, subtitles are familiar to an art house audience. It's also an, an audience that tends to be politically involved or politically left-leaning in some ways. And that became, I think, for the most part, the marketing strategy picked up by Cinecom um, for distribution, theatrical distribution, which was essentially an art house or specialty distributor at the time. Um, so the idea would, would be that both on a political level and in terms of seeing something um, that would have been seen as specialty or niche or art house or even subtitles, the idea that an audience would be willing, you know, which audience would be willing to put up with subtitles. It was originally uh, released in those contexts. There, the, 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 the six, there was a, on the part of the filmmakers and the distributors, there was a desire to get this film to Latino audiences, to, to people that might, that might connect with it on a different level. I don't know how successful those were. Um, they, I, I know that it, it went kind of ironically enough, it premiered in Los Angeles at, at the music hall in Beverly Hills. And so there were people wondering, why isn't it not showing in downtown Los Angeles on Broadway, where there at the time in the 1980s would have been, you know, five or six Spanish language theaters there. Um, so indeed, the, the distributor worked with um, Metropolitan Theaters, who ran some of the theaters along Broadway. <clears throat> the Corwin family, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Ross, but yes, the Corwin family, yes. And they worked with the Corwin family to develop a, a media strategy, like an advertising strategy with radio spots, print ads, so a, a trailer for the Spanish language uh, audience, potentially. Um, and so I don't know how well it did in that environment, um, theatrically, but it, it reportedly stayed downtown for about a year um, after its release. Uh, so it suggests that it was it was it was um, it was successful with multiple audiences and a Latino audience. But you have to remember, in 1983, marketing to a Spanish language audience or or a Latino audience was just uncharted territory for a distributor or a major studio. Right? Um, they were trying different strategies, a lot of which did not work. But this is one. Um, this, this could this I think their calculation for the film would have had to involve both audiences. I don't know if that answers your question. No, absolutely, yeah. And that was a part of a, a larger question about what's happening in Chicano filmmaking in the early 1980s. And I'm sort of curious, you know, Mirazal, like this idea of what's happening in that moment with Luis Valdez uh, shooting Zoot Suit. Is this a moment of kind of Chicano filmmaking rising or is it sort of like uh, a, a kind of a, a spark, but not necessarily a fire? What, what's happening in the early 1980s? Um, yeah, so it's a it's a really interesting moment. Um, so the 1980s, right? So Chicano filmmaking is really born out of the 1960s in terms of the Chicano movement, and um, it's really initially um, it's a response to decades of negative stereotypes of exclusion, um, and it's really something that is uh, conceptualized as oppositional cinema, right? It is oppositional filmmaking. It is meant to be a tool. It is meant as a weapon. It is meant you know, uh, to just counter all of this negativity, right? Um, so the the, in the 1980s, that's what, you know, um, we do get an, uh, Chicanos and Latinos, and, uh, this is the, the decade of the Hispanic is what it is, right? Um, so when the, the demographics are changing and the advertising industry and the media industry is all recognizing the, you know, the, the political power and the economic power of the Latino community, 
So um, where, you know, and, and Luis Valdez, he's one of the veteranos of Chicano film. He's, you know, made what's largely considered the first Chicano film, I Am Joaquin. Um, and so, you know, uh, and so Zutsu, when he makes Zutsu, this is really, it's really a historic um, film and on many levels. It's the first Chicano film that's produced and distributed, you know, by a Hollywood uh, studio, which is Universal Pictures. Um, it's based on the Zoot Suit Riots and the Sleepy Lagoon murder trial from the 1940s. Um, and so it, it's interesting because where Valdez was one of the most vocal people about, you gotta be outside the system. You, if you're part, if you're working in the system, then it's a problem. At the same time, you know, part of what the, the problem is, is, well, we've been excluded for so long. Why have we been excluded? So, so there's these sort of, you know, this push and pull, right? Um, these sort of contradictions. Um, so, you know, at some point there, there's a recognition that like reaching, there's, there's power in reaching this mass audience, right? Um, there, this is, this is an important thing. So this is a transitional moment where a lot of the Chicano filmmakers who have, um, really, you know, they start to professionalize, um, and they start to move into the mainstream. Hollywood starts to have a little interest. Okay. What's going on? There's this, there's some dollar signs we can tap into, um, you know, let's see what we can do here. So, um, this particular moment, there had just been a couple of, um, in 1981, so in 1979, there'd been a couple of gang exploitation uh, movies. So speaking of Robbie Benson, right? So <laughs> who, um, you know, played a Chicano in one of these movies. Um, but, um, you know, there were, there were a couple of gang exploitation movies, Walk Proud, Boulevard Nights, um, and there were protests around Boulevard Nights, uh, which really was bringing attention to these, you know, really negative portrayals. Um, and so the studios dropped plans for additional movies that were in the works, but Zoot Suit got to move forward um, because this was the moment they're saying, Hollywood says, well, let's give Latinos a shot at some self-representation here. Um, not a huge budget, it's still a very modest budget, definitely no marketing and all of that stuff, you know, uh, no marketing budgets and all of that. But, um, you know, uh, it, it's, a, it's a transition. Um, and Valdez did have to make some compromises in the film, right? So, with a, but the thing is, this is a moment when the filmmakers come in and say, well, let's try to bring in some of these oppositional ideas and work them into the mainstream. Let's mainstream a little. It means some compromises, certainly, um, but that's what you start to see happen. Um, it's not like zoot suit and suddenly there's a, you know, explosion or anything, but it's, it's a sort of a moment that signals this shift. Um, and Gregory Nava, you know, um, you know, the, the, I, I've heard Anna Thomas talk about how, you know, we were trying to get anybody and everybody to you know, listen to this script, it, like we're trying to pitch it and people are just like, as soon as you say brother and sister, like, and, oh, you know, no, nobody's interested anymore, right? Like we could not, couldn't, you know, just, it wasn't going to happen. So this was an independent film, right? They went out, those five people jumped in those uh, you know, VWs and they got it made any which way that they could. And then of course it does well. And then people start to perk up and they're, okay, now let's see, oh, let's, let's get it, let's get it into the theaters and, and it starts to grow. Right. And then, so it does signal this shift and then eventually where uh, they're willing to finance stuff. And you do start seeing, uh, you know, later in the eighties, you see more films like uh, you know, La Bamba was a huge one, 1987, um, you know, uh, uh, Born in East L.A. and Stand and Deliver. And there's a whole uh, series of, of films uh, for, you know, a good, a good 10 years where you get um, a lot of really successful uh, films in, in Hispanic Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. And 
speaking of the independent films, because it's not the only independent film that's about Guatemala in this, this in 1983, right? Because there's also this other documentary coming out at the same time um, when the mountains tremble. And I'm just curious, Colin, if you can kind of give us a sense of, you know, what it's like, this sort of a zeitgeist moment, you know, you sort of can always tell when something's happening, when there's sort of two projects, whether one's nonfiction and one's fiction, something's happening. So how did these films kind of like play at the same time? And did they give people a, a sense of both text and context? I'm just curious about what you can tell us about the documentary for those who haven't seen it and how it plays against and with um, this film. Yeah, for sure. Actually, I, I, I would think, I think when the mountain trembles, which is a doc, when the mountains tremble, which is a documentary about the situation in Guatemala um, narrated by Rigo Menchu, which a lot of you are probably familiar with, who a lot of you are probably familiar with, um, and I, I think it's probably a great companion. It came out the same year as El Norte. I think it's a great companion piece because it does what El Norte does not do, actually. It's actually about the U.S. intervention, U.S. policy, and the way it shaped the situation in Guatemala. Uh, it's not for the faint of heart because it is, very, it is very blunt and direct and explicit about the violence happening there. Uh, but it's also, um, it's also kind of, it's, a, it's an interesting companion piece because it's, it's a, it, it's a, you could get a glimpse of what it would have looked like for Rosa and Enrique if they would have stayed in Guatemala. Um, so the second half of the film is about the growing insurgency and the guerrilla movement um, and the resistance on the part of indigenous uh, indigenous peasants uh, and farm workers against the, the repressive regime, the, the military dictatorship in Guatemala. So it's an interesting companion piece. And, and, and curiously enough, when it premiered in New York City, when El Norte premiered in New York City, there were activists outside um, of the screening, handing out flyers for when the mountains tremble, saying it's playing at film forum. <laughs> you should go see it over there. As a way of saying, as a way of saying, this conversation continues. But here's also what this film is missing, right? This other kind of context that very much implicates uh, the U.S. directly in these relations and, and in these circumstances. Um, but it is a moment of this zeitgeist that I think very much shaped immigration policy for the next 10 years. And we can talk about that in a moment. But across the country, beginning in the 1980s, there is a lot of grassroots activism emerging in the United States um, in response to the situation in Central America around El Salvador. So, you know, in 1986, organizations in the Bay Area like Caresen appear. In 1980, you have CISPES, which is an organization that kind of has... Um, um, that has offices all over the United States dedicated to, to, to the situation in El Salvador, solidarity with the struggle in El Salvador, um, and a lot of grassroots activism happening um, around the country. So the El Norte is part of that, I think. And, and I think in some ways um, to do El Norte justice and understand its place within that moment in time, I think you can place it somewhere on that spectrum or within that constellation of different kinds of activism that are happening, right? So on the one hand, you could say, well, El Norte does a particular kind of thing in terms of humanizing its protagonists, but it would have been, it would have been a kind of companion piece again to the other kinds of media, the other kinds of activism, um, the other kind of discourse that was circulating around Central America um, at the time. And in, in that respect, there was kind of a groundswell uh, both in terms of artistic production uh, and, and activism, but also in, in media as well. And it's really interesting, you know, this, this pushback against Rosa Enrique, like the brother and sister story wouldn't sell because in a way that's exactly what sold that film. That's what made people, the whole idea, right, from Renava and Thomas is that like they needed compassion from people who didn't know the story. And it's evident by like, you know, the Mondale-Reagan debates and the, the domestic policy that changed in part because people who didn't, know the activism and didn't go see the documentary they got interested and i'm curious about your sense of of 
Can you tell us just like how quickly did things change? Like what happened in 84, 85, 86, like really like policy wise, what happened in the US in US domestic policy around Central, immigrant, Central American immigration? Can you tell us just a tiny bit just to know, because most films, like I think when you're a filmmaker, you think, boy, I hope people see it. And then there's this like dream of, I hope I make an impact, but like that really actually happened with this film. And it's not typical where you actually make a impact beyond the movie you've made. So I wonder if you could just tell us just a tiny bit for those who've seen it, like now to understand the impact that the film did have. Yeah. And I think that, again, I I think that you probably can't attribute it solely to the film, but to this, this, this kind of moment, this kind of groundswell of activism and, and, and this, these concerted efforts to create awareness among a, a U.S. public that was not necessarily aware of the situation or aware of its root causes, right? Um, first off, um, in 1984, imagine, if you will, two presidential candidates both referencing a, f- a feature film made by a, a Chicano filmmaker, right? But that's how reasonable, relatively, the immigration debate was back in 1984, that they're both talking about the the, the human impact of this uh, of this situation, right? Um, but it, it it was part of a, a a bipartisan push to get immigration reform, and so even uh, it's something I, I mean that probably the 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 most important legislation from that moment is in nineteen uh, in nineteen eighty six the Immigration Reform and Control Act, um, which granted asylum to around six million individuals who had been in the U S. since nineteen eighty two. Um, and that 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 was a gener- that that was a generational transformation. I mean, a lot of my students um, and friends, their parents were essentially kind of legalized by by that 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 act. And the kind of although it involved, as as you want a matter imagine, um, this kind of balance with border security and so on and so forth, and these other these other kind of measures, um, it it does suggest a kind of a more humane approach towards immigration and a recognition of the place of immigrants within the U.S. social and economic life and, and the need to deal with that situation in a humane and, and just way. Um, at the same time, interestingly enough, and this is kind of a, uh, is the, the, there was still up until the 1990s, uh, a differential treatment of immigrants from different Central American countries. In other words, the countries like Nicaragua and Honduras, where we were fighting the communists, those those immigrants were much more likely to have asylum cases be approved or to get asylum in the U.S. In countries where we were supporting repressive regimes that were being that were being opposed by indigenous resistance, like El Salvador and Guatemala, those asylum applications were denied at about 97, 99 percent during the 1980s. Um, and so it d- depended on what side of that what side of the cold you were you were on. Um, but a, but a government policy, the, the idea was you could not extend asylum to to Guatemalans or Salvadorians Salvadorans because it would be admitting that we had something to do with this crisis that we that we had something to do with the civil war that our involvement uh, was 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 causing this problem. Um, and so there's a way in which the the that. So that I know you asked me to be brief, I'll try to be brief. But that that began to shift in the 1990s when there were a couple of different, like the 1990 Immigrant Act, Immigration Act, um, which which began the temporary protected status for for Central Americans, including uh, those from El Salvador and Guatemala. So there there was a shift, and uh, and I think a lot of activism has a lot to do with that, um, uh, and and something like El Norte that brought this issue. To a broader consciousness, right? That it showed on public television. People saw it on public television. Um, I remember, I remember, you know, screenings happening in high school in Spanish classes where they're where they're always looking for good films to to show students. But the, you know, things like that that where it became a part of public discourse and in, in the fact that it made it its way into a, a presidential de- debate 
um, is remarkable in, in that respect. The fact that we're talking about it 35 years later uh, is, is remarkable as well, because that does not happen to, to many films. Yeah, in fact, it's funny you should say that because that's exactly where I saw it was was I saw it in in, uh, in junior high school. They showed it to uh, a bunch of Massachusetts kids, um, and you know made a quite an indelible impression. As you can see, we're still talking about it many years later. Um, and you know, I'm interested too about this about Nava's overall filmmaking because the border, right, Marisol comes up a lot, and I'm I'm still fascinated by you know uh, Nava made Border Town, and of course with things like My Family Me Familia. I'm kind of curious about you know are there other filmmakers who, you know, if you're inspired by El Norte and uh, Nava's kind of film, film catalog, are there other filmmakers that who have focused on this subject that we should kind of, if you're, if you've got some time while you're sitting in quarantine, that you'd love to look at some other films and filmmakers? Sure. I mean, um, I'm not by any means a, a border studies uh, scholar or anything, but I, I can certainly think of some films that that, um, you know, there are definitely some things that come to mind. And um, the first person that comes to mind is Lourdes Portillo um, in terms of like the classics. So when I think about this film, I immediately think of, uh, there's a film called Después del Terremoto, After the Earthquake, that was just made a few years uh, before that she made with um, Nina, a poet named Nina Serrano. Uh, it's about um, a Nicaraguan immigrant who's reunited with her boyfriend, um, you know, after he's, uh, you know, come to the United States also after being tortured, you know, because of his, his political activism in Nicaragua. And, um, you know, uh, interestingly, that, that film was actually really criticized um, because it wasn't political enough, right? This was just this story, this was film that was being used for a good, you know, you should be making hard hitting documentaries and fighting for the cause, right? This is the 70s in San Francisco. Um, and so, uh, so you think about just a few years later, a film like El Norte, a drama making such a huge impact to just see just how important, uh, you know, uh, films like that can be, right? Um, it's a short, it's a short film. Um, but her work in general, you know, she also made uh, Señorita Extraviada about the murders in Juarez. Um, and uh, in general, her work, what I find really interesting about her work is that she really raises lots of questions as opposed to really providing lots of answers. She, she really encourages us to question what do we what are we, what are we going to swallow you know in terms of the truth what do we think what's the official story you know um are, are we being critical about that so I think that's what I really love about her work uh in general um in terms of something a little more uh um contemporary I had uh Alex Rivera and Cristina Ibarra recently made a film called The Infiltrators which I think is just a really fascinating film um they're they're doing some really interesting work and they, they made this film together and it's um based on a real story of uh two immigrants who get detained on purpose uh in order to get into uh, a detention center so they can do their their work their activist work from within the uh the detention center uh, really amazing film about the the incredible work that um, young people are doing uh, around immigrant rights, you know, um, in this country. Um, and both of those filmmakers have done really amazing work. Alex uh, Rivera has did Sleep Dealer, which is really interesting. Uh, you know, think, think about labor and uh, you know the border. Um, and Cristina Ivara made a film called Las Martas, which is a really interesting look at the border in a very different kind of way. But I, they're they're two fabulous uh, filmmakers that I I always keep my eye out for whatever they're doing. That's great. 
Thank you. Yeah, I, I, one of the things that, you know, when I talk to you, both of you about this film, I think all of us are kind of interested in the movies that Nava and Thomas don't actually pull punches on this. They really talk about fissures within the community, you know, that there is not necessarily, you know, a simpatico from those in indigenous communities in, in Guatemala, when you arrive, even within Guatemala, then you arrive to Mexico, you find a different set of, uh, of conflicts, then you come to the United States, you find a different set of conflicts. I'm wondering if you can both just kind of give us a sense of 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 what is the what are the conflicts that they actually the script and obviously then the film generates and gives us a, a lens into you know about um, jobs and and who's protecting jobs and how different kind of practices work in how the whole trail right from going from Guatemala from Mexico and into Los Angeles um, all those things I'd really love to hear from both of you, if you can, just to give us a sense of, of the granularity, the texture that I think people would understand looking at this film. Do you want to take a stab at that one, uh, Colin, first? Or um... <laughs> I don't, I don't yeah. mind. I mean, I think one of the things that's remarkable about this when you go back to it is how, how fine-grained and how, how attuned they are to cultural, national, and linguistic difference which I think is remarkable for 1983, but it's remarkable, I think, for the 21st century, where in many cases you have films that like, you know, they are immigrants or they're Latinos. And even during, say, the Latin boom of the late 90s, early 2000s, a lot of those kind of Latino-oriented films, you can't tell where they're from. They're all, they're, they're actors from multiple, like, national origins, and they're all supposed to be in the same family, as an example. But this is very, it's, it's very nuanced. Um, and it doesn't pull punches, as you say, in terms of both, uh, thinking about difference, but also the way difference can lead to conflict or misunderstanding or miscommunication. Um, so even something, you know, the, 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 um, the use of the indigenous language, Quiche, and Spanish, and the difference between Guatemalan Spanish and Mexican Spanish, and how they have to kind of take on this, this identity as Oaxacans, even though the, the Mexican truck driver calls their bluff and like Oaxaca's ahead on the road you're too you're, you're we're still not there you can't be from Oaxaca um and when they get to Los Angeles continuing to call themselves Mexicans because it's easier than explaining that they're Guatemalan but it's also it's become part of the ruse but it's also become part of the way that they explain themselves to the people around them um and then the the and then you know finding the solidarity with the in the restaurant Enrique and the busboy who's Mexican against the the pocho who doesn't speak Spanish, who's of Mexican descent, but doesn't speak Spanish. So all these kind of generational, regional, national, linguistic differences um, and, the, and the, the relations they set up and enable um, and, those, and those limitations and conflicts, I think is, is really sophisticated in, in a way that, I, that resonates with a lot with the way that, that we talk about identity now. In other words, I think like if the, the focus on Central America and indigenous Central Americans um, the field of Latino studies is just just now catching up to that <laughs> in the last 10 years. And Gregory Nava and uh, this film is thinking about that back then, which is another reason like this becomes useful in the, in the in a classroom setting or otherwise for completely different reasons than I think it would be shown in a Chicano film class 20 years ago, which is where I saw it. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that 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 resonates or that makes sense. Me to oh, yeah. yeah, totally. Marcel, yeah. Yeah. No, I think I, I absolutely agree. Um, I, th I think the the, the idea of, of using the film to it just resonates with current day uh, understandings, right? Of of um, of the situation. So I, I, I absolutely agree. The other thing, and this is a, I'll, I'll start with you, Marisol, since uh, 
you ended. Um, the question is about the when there's this raid on the the clothing manufacturer. It really made me think because, you know, the whole conversation is like a fleeting reference to the idea that oh well now there's all these babies that will be left behind because the mothers have been taken right by INS. And it got me thinking, of course, the one of the many phrases we hear all the time is is child separation, family separation. And I it made me think: just are there other instances, other moments in the film that just sort of like really resonate with you to the sense of how little has changed or perhaps how much? What are the things in the film that just you see them? It's 1983, but you look, it's 2021, and there's just like it's just sort of glaring. Is there anything that kind of calls out to you at this moment? Yeah, there. Um, I would say probably just all of the scenes where the Latinos uh, are basically doing Rosa and Enrique dirty, you know. <laughs> so the guy who tries to rob them in the woods, the uh, Mexican coyote who's you know basically selling them to Moctad, and and he's you know uh, so condescending and and just you know profiting from everybody's labor. The Chicano waiter, like all of this now. That's not to say that Latinos do each other dirty. That's not what I'm focusing on, right? But the idea that people in general, right, um, the ways that this movie really, um, you know, looks at uh, the way that we turn on each other, right? And and for what? What is the purpose, right? So, you know, Nava Nava has has said that um, part of what he was doing with this when he, you know, Chicano films had had really been about like uplifting the community, right? Chicano culture is the best, we're the best. And in this movie, the Chicanos are pretty rotten, right? Um, which is pretty unusual for, for uh, uh, I think at, 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 this, at this moment to see that. Um, and so Nava has really, he said that specifically in some ways, what he was trying to do is just tell the truth. He's like, this could happen. I, you know, this, this is the kind of thing that happens. Right. Um, and so I'm not going to hide it. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to tell the truth. And in some ways it gets the audience right to trust you in a way, like I'm just telling, I'm telling a real story here. Right. Um, so I think the, the idea that, um, and what the truth to me, when I think about all of these things, and when I think about what, what is, what has not changed um, is the way that, you know, uh, the way that capitalism functions, right? The way that capitalism profits from uh, divide and conquer, right? Uh, the idea of, um, you know, gendered divisions of labor, um, pitting Mexican and uh, uh, white communities against each other, um, you know, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, there, there's just there's so many ways that the way the, the divisions between us like capitalism is what uh, what profits from that right and 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 thrives because of these kinds of divisions um, and so it it reminds me of the film Salt of the Earth uh, which you know from 1954 uh, so a movie so ahead of its time that really dives into this idea right of uh, of, of of basically okay. Well, how 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 capitalism makes us? Uh, we're we're all scratching and clawing, just trying to survive, right? Um, and so then you, well, okay, if I'm going to step on this guy's neck to make sure like, I, I've got it bad, but at least I don't have it as bad as that guy over there, right? So I'm just going to step on this person's neck, and at least I'm not at the bottom, right? <laughs> so I think that's sort of like what I see at play here, and it's like, oh, it's true in 1954, it's true in 1984, it's true in today you know, and not just among Latinos, but just, you know, uh, anybody who's scratching and clawing to, to get their way to the top or just not, not even to the top, just to survive. So. Yeah. 
Colin, did you anything that sort of like just jumps out at you when you were watching it again? Yeah, you know, the like the initial impulse of Gre that Gregory Nava had uh, Nava had to to humanize Im immigrants uh, and and to to follow that trajectory and to 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 center their stories to have it be, be told from their perspective, but also to to understand immigration as a longer process, right? Um, and I think both things are missing from our contemporary immigration conversations for the most part. I think that shifted somewhat recently, but there still is a lack of understanding of 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 the, that entire process. And to his credit, I, I think a lot of these films and Hollywood's guilty of this as much as Mexican cinema is, and 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 to some degree Latino cinema, immigration is seen as a border problem, right? And the focus is on the U.S.-Mexico border in some ways, justifiably. But that's also about where the border is, is, is the locus of enforcement or security and so on and so forth. But it doesn't encompass the entire phenomenon or process of, of migration, right? Um, and so I think the film both asks us to think about that entire journey um, and, and the end point of that journey. And, and, we're, we're, and you know, the, at the end of the film where they, they both, you know, where Enrique and Rosa are talking about that they have no home. They have no home where they came from. They have no home in Los Angeles. Um, and within that, that and, and at the same time, you know, in, in addition to covering that entire process, which I think was groundbreaking at the time and would still be groundbreaking today, um, regardless of the fact that they left out the, the, the analysis or the U.S. foreign policy, it's just the humanization. Um, and I think a lot, of, a lot of rhetoric about immigrants, a lot of anti-immigrant policy is 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 premised on dehumanization. So, like when I ask my students, talk to me about the, the 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 representation of immigrants or undocumented immigrants in U.S. media. They can't, right? They're like these discursive boogeymen, but they're not in cinema. They're not like they're they are probably more so than they used to be. But the students don't have like a clear idea in terms of that representation or even who these people are, right? Um, so stories like this and films like this allow viewers. A, to, to understand these as, as human beings making a motivated decision. And I think that's important because I think that like you can, I think that's a great starting point. I, I, someone recently mentioned this, like, I, I, like in the Joe Biden, in the Biden administration, saying that you have to imagine what, what it would take for you to travel thousands of miles to a place that you don't know, fully aware of the fact that you may be subjected to different kinds of violence along the way, or sending your teenager unaccompanied on that same journey, right? What would it take for you? What kind of circumstances what it, would it take for you um, to, to make that journey or allow someone else to do that, right? And that question, that kind of very human question leads to, in an ideal circumstance, thinking about what are those factors? What are those circumstances? And, and ultimately, you know, the, the U.S. has a lot to do with that. We are, we have a lot to do with that and the kind of life, the lifestyles we live in a place like L.A. And I think Nava does a great job of making this point. Um, the city is dependent on that labor, Right. But there's not an acknowledgement of that or an acknowledgement of the of the policies, a long standing decades long century worth of policies um, that have led to, the, to that situation. That's a long multifaceted answer that I hope was not that convoluted. But I think that, that, but I think it's at the heart of what's missing from the immigration debate. And so it's sad that I think that humanization is still one of those things that we have to work on. But it is. And I think it's I think in some ways it's the it's the key to a lot of shifting that debate in really important ways.
Yeah, and I'm always struck by the fact that it's this movie comes out one year before Moscow on the Hudson, which also documents it's a very different border crossing, right? It's more of defection, but it's not a celebratory story necessarily that immigration and assimilation is the answer to all problems. In fact, it's just the beginning of another step, which is sort of the genius of the movie is that it has these three stages. And I always think like the actually the homeland sequence is the one that you almost would never see in a Hollywood film that it does right. so beautifully to actually spend that time there to situate you. And I'm kind of curious, you know, before we turn it over to audience questions, is one of the things that I was curious about is, you know, Navas talked about making another film called Gates of Eden, and I'm hopeful that it will it will get made and we'll be able to see it. And it would be something he's talked about is updating the kind of immigration situation, but for like, you know, the 2021 and forward. Do you think that enough film that could come out now based on, you know, we have so much other competing media, right? Half the people are spending their lives on Zoom or watching, playing video games or looking at their phones. Could a film come out now, whether it's Gates of Eden or another, that would make a real impact into this conversation? Because as you said, so much of the conversation is faceless, right? We, we get images of walls and we get images of, of buildings and we get images of razor wire. We don't get images of actual people. Could you make a film about another Rosa Enrique where you actually could make a difference in 2021? What, what, I'm just curious what you both think about that. I'll not be the soul take this first. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I'm in this field for a reason. I, I believe that film is just so powerful. Um, and uh, I think that a film like El Norte where this idea of compassion, right? And humanization, yeah. I, it's, it's so important. Um, you know, uh, I, I, a couple of, uh, an interview I saw with Anna Thomas recently, she was talking about how, you know, films don't make policy, um, you know. Uh, so on some, on some level, I can see that at the same time, like people make the policies and the people who make the policies are the people who watch movies, right? And for me, when I think about this, I'm like, I think it, it can make a difference. And, but I think it's a long-term investment, right? People who are growing up with more and more of these images, um, who whose understanding of an immigrant experience um, is different, is more human, is more you know, uh, and, they, and they're getting that compassion instilled in them young, as opposed to having to unlearn all this garbage that they've been learning and having to un deprogram. You know, uh, if they grow up with more of that, we have more stories like that. We have hope that those people are going to get into the positions that they're the ones making the policies, the humane policies. No, 100%. You know, the, the, the example on that note that comes immediately to mind, and I, I think it's not, it's not about a film changing policy per se, and this is probably the most cliche film I could, you know, the, probably think, is, is Roma from two years ago. Um, because, the, I, and, and there were a lot of debates about that. Some people loved it, some people didn't like it. But that debate is still going on two years later, and it provoked a really meaningful conversation in Mexico about race and about discrimination against indigenous people. Um, and it, it, and regardless of what you think about the film, the power of a film to ignite a societal a debate and a transnational and global debate at that, right? So, because I think a lot of that has extended into the U.S. Um, and Yalitza Aparicio has become a, a star, not only for, for her performance, but because she's the face of this, this changing, a changing Mexico, a changing U.S., right? Because of the, the, the indigenous migration to the U.S. over the past 20 years, right? So there's a way in which that I be, I be, I've come to value films like El Norte and Roma as, as what they are as films, but as uh, remarkable 
remarkable successes at generating a conversation, right? That in El Norte is still generating this point, regardless of what you think about the film. We're talking about it 35 years later, right? Regardless of what you think about Roma, I like I, I could teach an entire semester on that, <laughs> based on everything everything that that has that has that, that has been generated by that film and the response to it. a lot of it ugly, of course. But nonetheless, there there is these kind of there are these kind of shifts that happen, and so I've come to believe in the power of film on that level, right? That it's not necessarily a one to one effect, but 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 the right film at the right place at the right time can, can produce these, this kind of dialogue that that I that I think in many cases, you know, in, in the case of Mexico, it is entirely and a hundred percent acceptable to be openly racist towards indigenous people in public. When it, so the what you see in El Norte still happens, right? The fact that their conversation is starting about that and there's some kind of stigmatization of being racist on that level um, is a start, right? It's not, the, it's not the end of the conversation by any means. And the film doesn't necessarily solve a problem. Um, but in that way, I think the films and, a, and, a, and a, a new film about immigration, for the reasons I said earlier, would uh, on that level, I think would be more than welcome, right? Because unfortunately, we, we, we do still have people who don't understand or, or talk about immigrants as human beings, right? Yeah, well, you both convinced me, but of course, I'm 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 a cinephile for the many reasons you just said because I think that's art, right? Art is supposed to get us engaged, and that's what this whole thing is about. I'm 100% believe. Well, one of the things that, that came up from from the question um, is kind of twofold, which is one is the question about we just have to talk about it, the tunnel, the tunnel rat sequence, um, and then the way if I can embed these two questions together, a question about the style the style of the film, the production design and how it might reflect the narrative and political aims of the film. So, you know, that sequence mixed with the kind of like, you know, you, there's a lot of texture to the film, the beautiful production design and set, set design of the film gives that kind of framing devices. So I'm just curious about your sense of how the tunnel sequence plays, um, which, and then where the kind of production design of the film kind of plays in some of the, the, the themes of the, of the film and, and maybe it's political efforts. I don't know if I can speak to the tunnel specifically, but when I think about um, some of the cinematography and some of the, you know, the, um, the magical realism kind of, uh, you know, some, some of that, that, the way that functions to, you know, it, it doesn't fit the logic, right, of the Hollywood narrative, right? It doesn't fit, uh, I, I, I think it just um, forces us to think a little differently and to think about different realities, right? Um, I, I'm every, every time I watch this and I see, you know, like the scene where Rosa sees her mom in the kitchen, like how out of place that looks and how, how you know, uh, th just the, the lighting, everything, it's just so beautiful. Um, and it always reminds me of just like all of these stories I used to hear as a kid and things that were part of my everyday reality. But the further you get from further I get from my elders and I don't hear those stories, I don't think about them as much. And I get set in this other way of thinking that those stories, that reality, not just the stories, but, you know, you feel Rosa's connection to something else. Right. She's not just functioning uh you know in this world where she's just trying to survive she's connected to something bigger she's connected to this other side she's connected to her family she's connected to her traditions it defies the logic i don't know if that's from, was she vacuuming when that happened was she sleeping when that, i don't know like it doesn't matter i just feel 
her, you know, and, and her, and her world. Right. And you get immersed. So, um, I, I don't, I, I don't know about the tunnel. I'm sorry. I don't have too many thoughts no, on the tunnel, that's, but that's, that's quite okay. <laughs> it's, 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 yeah. Oh, I get the tunnel, huh? All right. <laughs> you get the tunnel. All right. No. So I, I, I have a number of thoughts about the tunnel, one of which was I turned away again when I was watching it because it was just too much. And critics at the time mentioned it as well. Um, um, like having difficulty. One critic, I think, was trying to like couch his terms like diplomatically or couch his diplomatically saying, well, the running time's a bit long. They could have shaved a bit off the tunnel thing. But I was like, that's not why you picked the tunnel. The tunnel thing. <laughs> <laughs> because it was, it's hard to look at, right? And I, I think it lasts almost, I timed it this time, it's like nine to 10 minutes or something like that. It's excruciating and it's supposed to be excruciating. Um, and I think that I, I think that puts you in their place in, in a way. There are a number of different techniques throughout the film that put you in their place. And those, the, the moments that Mirasol mentions, those kind of surreal, magical, realist moments when they're transported back home or when their 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 parents are transported to you know they're in the same space together even though that's impossible um but this is one of those things that the, one of those techniques that puts you in the place of someone going through a tunnel and having to imagine what that must be like what can one do with with fiction filmmaking versus non-fiction filmmaking um with a film like this like how can you what are the needs and is it just to kind of find a human element for compassion or is it a framing device you know the journey um that i'm just curious your sort of sense of like what what makes it that it um makes it meaningful for people who may have not thought about this issue if there's something in the film that kind of you think resonates is it just the that we all come from a we all have families or is it this idea of because Marisol you were talking about this idea of of exploitation of labor, you know, and this sort of extraction of, of labor and exploitation. Is it the idea that we are all struggling or is it that within the struggle, there's family? There's these kinds of themes. And I'm just curious as we, cause this is probably going to be our last question. Um, but I'm just curious if there's things about this film that just sort of resonate because they're just core human elements um, that will resonate with people. Then that's why the film kind of connected. I mean, to me, I think the family part of it is the tearjerker part of it, but I don't know if it, to me, is the part that uh, is necessary as universal because we do all have such different kinds of family connections or, you know, um, but I think the idea of trying to survive or the idea of having dreams, the idea of having, you know, working towards something and then the disappointment or the realizing it's futile or realizing you know not to be totally depressing but like how limited how how tied your hands really are how systemic some of these problems are yeah Colin yeah and to me speaking of the American dream because I was thinking about that as well like that I think like the reversal in a way that, that that Navas and Thomas are able to do in so far as you see restaurants I mean you see all the things that appear in the good housekeeping magazines as the American dream which turn out to be a, a, a fiction in, in, inaccessible to them. It exists, but th they are the support structure, right? In restaurants, in the fashion industry, in terms of domestic work, in terms of construction at the end, like like the, Enrique, you know, they've just had this conversation when they're talking about they have no home. He's left building someone else's home, this kind of two-story home, you know, like a suburban home or what have you. But the reversal in, in this case is the fact that these are environments um, that a lot of us are familiar with. 
this is labor that we've run into or they've been served by. And this is what Nava was saying, like, the, you know, the next time I, I, someone walks into a restaurant, I want to think I want them to think about the person serving me their coffee. This film is about the people serving the coffee, about the people in, that, that are making the clothes that end up in the magazines. And that kind of reversal of perspective, I think, is completely and totally powerful because um, because we don't usually get that perspective in Hollywood films, but we, because we've also been kind of primed by the film to understand these as facets of the American dream. Um, and we realize once they arrive that they, that they do, that there's unequal access to that. And in fact, they are the support structure for the, the unacknowledged support structure for other people's American dreams. Um, and that to me, there are reminders of that throughout the film at different moments. And I, I think that is one of the more, the more, powerful dimensions of the film from from my perspective or thinking about how that works and also the role of media and even send you know the in in projecting a kind of american dream because they implicate movies they implicate good housekeeping <laughs> and the <laughs> fact that the, this is a vision of the u.s that goes around the world um but the but, but that has these kind of this insidious underside right this exploitative underside that i that i think that that in many ways is what sticks with me uh from the film this was, uh, this was fantastic. I'm so grateful to both of you. This was just a great talk and I, I knew it would be invaluable to have you both here. So I'm just so thankful. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.